0: My name is Evan White and you're listening to the Stories on Stage Davis podcast. Before I get to the usual introduction of the episode, I want to take a moment to announce that Stories on Stage Davis and the Yolo County Library are presenting a virtual event on Saturday, April 24th with special headliner Reina Grande, who is the author of the acclaimed best-selling memoir The Distance Between Us. The event will feature a special conversation with Grande and also a writing contest open to high school students. You can find more about the event on the Stories on Stage Davis website. In the meantime, we're pleased to present an excerpt of Branches by Adam Peter Johnson in this week's episode. Part dystopian, part all too familiar, Branches walks an imaginative line between what we think we know and what actually is. You'll be hearing from the very beginning of the novel. Reading Branches is actor Jason Oler, who is making his debut with our series. Stay tuned after the reading to hear Adam Peter Johnson on the inspiration behind his story. But first, here's Jason Oler reading an excerpt from Branches.
1: Branches by Adam Peter Johnson Saturday I'm standing at the water's edge when the phone call comes, sand to my ankles, sinking deeper with each advance of the waves breaking on the beach. Nolan is laughing, suspended in the air, his little arms linked between Meredith and me, his feet strafing the water as it rushes past. I don't want to answer, so I keep tracking the rhythm of the waves, the salty spray against the nearby rocks. I search for another distraction, my son straining my arm as he whipsaws beside me, giddy as he's dragged by the water flowing back out to sea. Along the shore, a black ground beetle scampers toward a driftwood refuge, tiny barbed legs knifing it forward, but it's wiped out by the surf before it has a chance. Seems about right. Up on the beach. Dad's swaying on the old weathered rocking bench where I once spent countless hours, where a few out years ago, my parents and I had taken one last picture together. And beyond, past the sand berm at the beach's far edge, the quaint old Rambler home. Same as it ever was. But today it feels like a memory that belongs to someone else. I'm trying to remember what I'd hope to gain by coming back here. I told Meredith it was to let Nolan have some quality time with his grandpa to awaken the same love of the trees and the trails that I had found at his age. Walkie-talkie hide-and-seek, plastic bow and arrows with rubber nipple tips, the whole bit. And Dad deserves some time with family again. But if I'm honest, I came for me. To escape. And right now it feels like a mistake. This is what Nolan needs. Not me. I'm closer to 40 than four, yet I feel so much older. I told people it was the election that broke me. But that's not the truth. Sure, my feeds were melting down. They always are. Apocalypse now and forever. Amen. No, it was the silence after that did it. The sight of everyone going about their days as if the world hadn't ended. All those years ceaselessly hoping to stop the inevitable. There was no way he could win again. Not now. Not after everything that's happened. And of course he didn't win. Not really. We all knew it, but it didn't matter. Because apparently nothing matters. And so everyone just kept moving through their daily loops like wind-up toys. In denial. Defeated or just oblivious. Nothing short of innocence being gunned down in the street could shake them. And then not even that. I don't know. Some people said I was overreacting, which, let's face it, doesn't help when the problem is that no one seems to be reacting at all. Worse still were those who either decided or revealed they were actually happy about it. Meredith said she understood. Nolan couldn't possibly, which was for the best. At least he had an excuse. Take it, Meredith reminds me of the call still ringing out against the crush of the waves. It's going to be good news. But I don't think she means it. Then again, any answer is better than no answer. The voice on the other end of the line doesn't waste time with pleasantries. How soon can you get back to the hospital? Your results are here. Why don't you come in and we'll talk about it. Sunday. Ever been invited into someone's home and then they go out of their way to make you feel unwelcome? You make small talk. Maybe if you're lucky, you score a glass of water, but ice would be pushing it. The front door stays in the host's line of sight at all times. Everyone involved silently agrees to pretend they're having a good time as the whole experience screams, I was just being nice. How dare you actually take me up on the offer? Every moment spent in a hospital is like that. Doctors always insist you come at the first sign of trouble. Then they don't know what to do with you. They're embarrassed that they can't figure out what's wrong, so they keep the meter running until you finally agree to leave them alone. The walls of the waiting area irritate me. I'm back home, back in the blunt cold of the north, 1,200 miles from the nearest ocean, This is either the eighth or ninth time I've waited here over the past year. I've lost track. Each time I bristle at the sight. Seams in the wallpaper curling at the edges. An old cathode ray TV sulking on a corner table. An underlit fish tank so barren it looks like a metaphor for the impending fallout from climate change. A grandmother watching wrapped as a toddler thumbs her way through board books. Okay, so that one's pretty cute. But the walls irritate me. Mom would have called the color baby shit green and then laughed. And her laugh would have gotten everyone else laughing, whether they thought it was funny or not. It's probably the first time I've smiled in a week, but only for a moment. The boxy old television interrupts the thought, flogging a wintry view of Washington and the preparations being made for the inauguration. And I wonder again how all this could have happened. A nurse leads me down a labyrinth of identical hallways, but not to the doctor's exam room I'm expecting. Instead, I find myself in a small conference room with half a dozen professional types in business attire seated around a teardrop-shaped table. None of them look like doctors to me. Maybe they sent me to the wrong room, an unwanted house guest once again. I can show myself out, thanks. One of the suits looks at me he stands as i enter a pale young man too young i think for what we're here to discuss who greets me with an eager smile and a bristling energy that makes me even more uncomfortable welcome how you must be feeling right now he says with a posh english accent he takes my coat ushers me to the sole open chair at one end of the table thank you thank you for coming on such short notice i hover over the chair reminding myself to ask whether the hospital will reimburse my family for the cost of changing return flights but my familiar headache is making it hard to concentrate and that's not what i really need to know how long do i have i ask the young man squints glances back at his colleagues They're looking in the general vicinity of where I'm standing, but none look me in the eye, except one, a middle-aged woman, who's wearing an elaborate emerald brooch. The distracting bit of flair is tastefully pinned to a tailored suit jacket that complements her dark skin. But for some reason, I think it seems out of place. The woman's eyes are studying me the whole time. By contrast, The mousy, bald man seated next to her gives little evidence there's anything going on behind his dim eyes at all. Across the table, a young woman with a blonde pixie cut keeps nervously digging at her cuticles, silently mouthing words as if she's trying to talk herself into something. And the other two make so little impression they're practically human screensavers. Beg pardon, the young man says, puzzled by my question. It's not exactly a mystery, I say. The only time doctors refuse to discuss lab results over the phone and insist you cut your vacation short so you can come to the hospital on a Sunday, it's when you're dying. So there's one question I need answered. How long? This gets the man even more excited. All apologies for the misunderstanding. He urges me to sit. I comply. The woman with the brooch is now holding a small clicker of some kind in her raised hand. The man nods and she clicks on cue, firing up an overhead projector. The word Quantjin appears on the far wall beneath an abstract symbol. A quick series of five chimes plays in the background somewhere. Great. Proprietary melody for a nebulous brand. Just the worst. I should know. It's my job to work on these things. At least it was. I half expect to see two horny yet chaste retirees sunsetting in twin bathtubs out in a field somewhere. Now then, the woman with the brooch says, I'm sure your doctor mentioned that one of the tests you took was a new kind of test. Where is my doctor? I ask. Why isn't Dr. Jawadi here? Don't worry, we're in total communication, she says. You're free to follow up with her another day, but for now, we are here to help you. You see, your symptoms, they made you a plausible candidate for something the medical community has until recently never thought to look for. Something special. She advances the slide on the wall, and quant is replaced by the branching limbs of a massive tree. It's a big world out there, she says in fact it's much bigger than you know wait i interrupt just so i'm clear because i don't know that i got a straight answer you're saying i'm not dying correct before she has a chance to respond the pixie cut abandons her cuticle and jumps in for some reason she lets out a nervous breath and appears overcome with emotion can't you see in my eyes that i'd rather die than cause you a minute's pain she says to me, the eyes in question welling up. No, wait, can I start over? Everyone else glances at one another, not really reacting and I have no idea what's happening. The young man in charge cuts her off with an open palm. Whoa, whoa, easy. (laughs) Let's just, um. (laughs) sorry about this, he says in my direction. Let's take it down a notch, okay? Beverly here. Y- Fantine. She corrects. Ah, right, Fantine. You see, she's just... Fantine? Really? He turns to the others for validation, but gets nothing. So he presses on. <laughs> anyway, she's been in back-to-backs all day, and well, let's focus on moving forward with the presentation, shall we? Of course, Fontaine says, immediately composed. Sorry. The woman with the brooch resumes as though nothing had happened, clearly a pro, her eyes still trained on me. You know, for centuries people believed that persistent seizures, like yours, were caused by evil spirits or demons, some living force, and many believed that epileptics had been granted a supernatural gift that let them see things others could not, Some even called it the sacred disease. Now, advances in modern medicine and the discovery of the neurological basis for epilepsy did away with those theories, but then not all seizures are made equal. And occasionally, further advances mean we later learn our ancestors were onto something, however imperfect their understanding may have been. She leans forward in her chair. Tell me. Have you ever heard of something called a quantum signature? (laughs) Hold on, I say, now more angry than confused or fearful. What is all this? What are you saying? If I'm not dying, then what do I have? The young man smiles. An opportunity. Share. Scroll. Comment. Refresh. Share. I find myself instinctively scrolling feeds on the bus ride home from the hospital. A flick of a thumb, first honed on Toki and Battletoads, delivers the latest news, but the dopamine hits aren't what they used to be. Nights once spent on Candy Crush, now replaced by doom scrolling. Diminishing returns and everything. The headlines are bleak, as usual. Today, it's another long-shot recount effort shot down, overwhelming evidence of voter suppression ignored, and the voices who always claim to know better are out bleeding, reminding us of the obvious. It's too late. All is lost. Even though I'm thinking about it constantly, I'm still not ready to, to accept what all is lost actually means. Some people said I should stop worrying about events happening a thousand miles away, but now... As we pass armored vehicles every six blocks, it doesn't feel so distant. I have to keep on top of it, make sure everyone knows whether they want to or not. Share. The ground keeps shifting out from under me. It's all I can do to stay on my feet. To be honest, the distraction is just a way to avoid calling Meredith a few minutes longer. I know that. It's not like I'm in denial. But this isn't helping, so I dial home. We try to talk, but Nolan is crashing around in the background, so she's catching every third word. They were who? she asks. I tell her what they told me. They're a pharmaceutical company that apparently specializes in something called quantum pharmacology, I explain. Nolan is banging what sounds like pots and pans, upset that Meredith is talking to me and not to him. Bang. Bang. And it's a what? You have what? I have a parasite, I say too loudly. A couple seated across from me gets up and discreetly moves to the back of the bus. Meredith lets out an audible sigh. So it's not cancer? Cancer? As she says it, I'm feeling relief, too. But how did you get it? A work trip? Bang. I tell her they didn't know. They asked a million questions about where I've been, about everything, really, but I've traveled so much. Bang. They took lots of notes but didn't offer any feedback. Bang. I bet it was when we all went on your work shoot to the Amazon last year, Meredith says. You kept saying you were nervous about getting in the water, and I said you were being ridiculous. She's already blaming herself. I should have stopped you. I thought it was a quick dip. You'd been through so much, and I thought... God, what if Nolan has it? Bang. Bang. The pots and pans have me rattled now. I keep watching to make sure we're not being stopped at another surprise checkpoint. Nolan was never anywhere near the water on that trip. I remind her, and the truth is we don't know. It could have been any of a dozen trips or not a trip at all. All I know is they didn't seem to know. It's a species they've just recently discovered. I'm remembering the look on the woman's face. God, I already forgot all their names. I'm shit with names. The woman with dark skin, thick tousled hair, and an emerald brooch. Beverly, maybe? The look when she said the parasite was special. The young man in charge was just pushing a product, but she seemed to actually believe in it. I try to explain it the way they explained it to me. How time is like an ever-branching tree. Every possible event, every possible configuration of every variable in the world is happening all the time, simultaneously, I say. It's the set of variables we share that determines exactly which branch of the universe we follow together. But somehow, somewhere, all of those other variables are playing out as well. They're just on different branches of the universe we drift away from. And each new moment brings a million new branches yet again. Bang, bang, bang. What a, quiet Nolan, what are you saying? I thought this was about a parasite it is the parasite in a host makes its way to the brain but as far as the scientists can tell it doesn't cause any real damage instead it drifts it's not like any other living thing they've seen before sometimes when branches split the parasite forks away from everything else and follows a different branch instead and these people quant gen they can tell because at the tiniest scale possible the quantum level Apparently everything from our branch has a signature that always reads the same. I didn't totally understand what they were saying, but it's like everything here vibrates the same or something. Bang, bang, bang. So you have a fluke or something in you? Nolan, kiddo, stop. Something that vibrates different because it's from what? A different timeline? I mean, that's crazy. And you believe them. I didn't at first, but I do now. But I don't want to get into it, so I don't respond. She's silent for a minute, but Nolan's banging continues. I don't get it, Meredith says. Do they think it's valuable or something? I watch the other passengers on the half-full bus, everyone looking into the middle distance, swaying together around corners and over ruts in the pavement, past the armored patrols all somewhere else in their mind, just trying to make it through the winter. No, I say. That's not it. There's a pill, or rather, a a series of pills they want me to take. They think they can push it back to its proper branch. So the pills will kill it? They'll cure you? You'll be cured? Basically, I say. Or so they think. There's no way insurance will cover this. Bang. They say it's a drug trial, I explain. Apparently insurance doesn't enter into it. I take seven pills over the course of a week and that's it. Oh. I can faintly hear Meredith's reaction. Not crying, just overwhelmed. And I know the exact expression she's making because I've seen it so many times the past few years. But this time I think it's a sign of relief, of release. And now I'm feeling it too, like a sense of shock wearing off, though I can't remember when exactly the feeling began. I take a deep breath, bang. I don't want to tell her the last part, bang. I consider waiting, but it'll just be worse if I do. The thing about the vibrating, I say, Quan Jin said it's not just the parasite that's vibrating wrong. Bang. It's me. Bang. They're saying I'm from another branch too. What? What does that mean? Would the pills hurt you? They told me there was no chance, but then they also had me sign several waivers. I don't understand, she says, becoming more alarmed. So these people, people we've never heard of before, they're saying you have a parasite that's giving you seizures and makes you vibrate wrong, but the pills will make it go back to a different branch of reality, or whatever. Not exactly. They think the nausea, the seizures, all of it is the result of drifting between branches. Apparently I've been drifting with it ever since I picked it up. In theory, the pills should stop it and send us both back. Bang. Bang, bang, bang. Honey, this is crazy, Meredith shouts over Nolan's banging. This sounds like a scam. We need to call someone. I'm not going to lose you because you won't lose me. Of course not. I'd still be here, they said. Same as always. As they described it, you probably wouldn't even know I've changed, and I'd be vibrating right again. I just, I guess, in some way wouldn't be this version of me. I know the look she's making now, too. You're scaring me, she says. And I don't know why you're not scared, too, but you need to wait before getting any pills from them. Do not take anything until we can look into this more. Okay? Promise me. I promise. We hang up and suddenly I realize I'm the only passenger left on the bus, so focused I hadn't even noticed anyone get off. I listen to the rumble of the engine and think about the pills as I try to decide how I'm gonna tell Meredith I already took two.
2: This is Adam Peter Johnson, and you just heard an excerpt from my novel, Branches. The past few years have not been easy ones. The news we scroll on our phones feels a bit like a never-ending series of catastrophes and scandals. To the point that there's a running joke on social media about how the writers, in quotes, have really gone off the rails and that everything happening in the world around us seems straight out of some poorly scripted B-movie. What place is there then for something like the escapist thrills of dystopian fiction when we're used to seeing new signs of dystopia every 10 minutes? Like many people, Questions about how things could have gone so wrong so quickly had been weighing on my mind since 2016. And then, on New Year's Eve 2018, my mother died very suddenly. She was here, and then she wasn't. And those signs of dystopia were no longer just on my phone. The year following her death is all a blur now, But, like most people who are grieving the loss of a loved one, my thoughts regularly turn to the question of what I would do for the chance to have her back. But, of course, we've all read endless stories about making deals with the devil. And they all end the same way. So there was never a hypothetical I could imagine that made any sense. Of course the devil would never offer a fair deal. Rod Serling taught us better than to fall for that but I still had this desire for some kind of solution, even if I couldn't quite articulate it. It wasn't until a year after mom's death, around the time we all became collectively homebound as a result of COVID-19, that it occurred to me to reframe the question. Forget about playing God. If given the choice between living in various worlds that would all continue to exist, whether I'm there or not, which would I choose? Now, I've always loved stories that involve time travel. And one thing the best time travel tales have in common is that they're all fundamentally stories about regret, about righting wrongs, fixing things that are broken, or things you would wish you had done differently. They're all rooted in that universal longing for a do-over because anyone who's lived has something they regret. But when it came time to write this story, I decided I wanted to do something different. I wanted to take that wish-fulfillment fantasy of changing the past off the table, and instead focus the story on the question of whether we can change our present, and ultimately, our future. Instead, this novel plays out in the present day, across timelines that are almost but not quite the same. Because in addition to time travel, I also love dystopian stories about alternate histories and futures. These 2 subgenres tend to get lumped into that same gnarly ball of wax we call science fiction. But for the most part, the appeal of alternate timelines lies in the fact that there are thought experiments about the world around us. And we can enjoy the escapist thrills of a dark world where Nazis won World War II because we're reading about it from a place of comparative safety and security. But as I said, right now, we are not living in a time of safety and security. So on the one hand, we have this rich genre of stories rooted in a sense of personal regret and an equally strong tradition of stories that try to say something about societies. And really, what interests me as a writer is the connection between those two things. We don't live outside of society, we are a part of it. And society can't function without shared myths we tell one another about how the world around us works. Branches is a novel about those stories we tell one another and ourselves. It's about a man who's deeply unhappy with the world in a way that I'm sure reflects the feelings of many people today. But unlike most of us, he's given the chance to start over. He's certain why things have gone so wrong. But as the story progresses and events change bit by bit, his certainty gets tested. It's a story about the ways people respond to events beyond their control and also a story about grief. It's unfortunate that so many people can relate to this right now. Living in America in 2021 is hard enough without dealing with tragedy and loss on top of it. But I also found the act of writing about a world where the pandemic never happened and the trade-offs that occurred as a result offered me a sense of clarity and perspective that made the challenges of 2020 much more bearable. If I have one wish, It's that Branches might help someone gain a new sense of perspective about their own life. Thanks for listening. More information about my novel Branches is available at adampeterjohnson.net.
0: You've just heard an excerpt of the novel Branches by Adam Peter Johnson, read by Jason Ohler. The Stories on Stage Davis podcast will be back on March 13th with a story by emerging writer Lauren Huang Finkelman. The Stories on Stage Davis podcast is a sponsored project of YOLO Arts, a nonprofit arts organization, and supported in part by a grant from the City of Davis Arts and Cultural Affairs Program. Find upcoming episodes, view our archive of past episodes, and help support our series at StoriesOnStagedavis.com.